Hey kids, I'm Michelle Carlo and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week we talked about S-E-X. This week we're going to talk about S-E-X and what it means to have showtime and how if you persist, sometimes you get exactly what you want and need, which isn't necessarily S-E-X. Oh, yep, this is the Nevertheless She Persisted episode, and we have a lot of story to get in today. Plus, we definitely want to get our guest artist in, but right now, we'll begin by cruising a bit with Smokey Robinson from 70s, people were obsessed with sex even more than in the free love hippy-dippy days of the 1960s, later for any political revolution, because now it was the sexual revolution. Maybe it was all the disco. Maybe it was the appearance of single bars where more primitive versions of what would become yuppies lounged around sipping white wine and popping quaaludes looking for Mr. or Ms. right now. Mainstream magazines like Esquire, New York Magazine, and Cosmopolitan and Viva, Viva were all oozing it. Racier publications like Playboy, Playgirl, and Hustler pushed the boundaries of what was legally and morally considered smut. And movies like Behind the Green Door, Deep Throat, and The Happy Hooker were not just shown in Times Square, but at film festivals with big-name celebrities lining up at each premiere. And books? Books. Books like The Joy of Sex. The sensuous woman, and everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask. Not just a Woody Allen movie, it was actually a book first, kids. These were available in almost any library to any curious teen to browse. Even exercise guru of the times, Bonnie Pruden, made bank with her special workouts to improve sexual performance called Sexercise. But these new adult rules had little or nothing to do with what was happening in the playgrounds and schoolyards of my Bronx. As in this story, Chapter 31 of Fish Out of Agua, Escape from 192 Schoolyard. You have to do it, Shell, Renee said. You have to find a way. Renee glanced over to where her new ex-boyfriend, Billy, was talking to my still-boyfriend, Brendan, both of whom, incidentally, were pretending not to look at the two of us. Renee continued, I I might have even stayed with Billy, except, well, you know why. All right, Shell. See ya. And Renee walked out of the schoolyard. She walked out of 192 schoolyard, and she wouldn't be back, because she would be going to... SVA, the School of Visual Arts, soon. I, too, had wanted to be an artist once more than anything. I, too, had once dreamed of going to art school. But I was afraid that for me, it was too late. 
Ever since I could remember the way I coped with uncertainty, with frustration, with disappointment, with fear, and with shame, was to draw. Even now that getting high had become my other escape, I still drew. And if something wasn't going right with the drawing, I could always just erase it and start over. And if after a couple of tries it still wasn't working, I'd just rip the whole thing up and start over. And be done with it. How many times had I put all my fury into rending, tearing, destroying, and obliterating a botched drawing? And then calmly starting over. How many times had I wished I could do that with my life? For the last couple of years, I had seen the posters that Paul Davis drew for the School of Visual Arts. They were up and down the entire number six train line. There was one with a Pagliacci-type clown that said, To be good is not enough, when you dream of being great. And there was another one of of a man stuck behind an iron grating that said, Paul Gauguin worked for a bank until he was 35. It's never too late. These were beautiful posters, but seeing them always made me feel worse than sad, more like I had forever missed out on my one chance in life. I hadn't been able to go to the High School of Art and Design because I had the mumps the day of the test and there were no makeups and I didn't go to college right after high school. In fact, I had barely gotten out of high school at all, although it wasn't entirely Brendan's fault. I spent the last half of my senior year tripping on acid, listening to music, making out, and just not going to school. At what I thought was my graduation that June, I wasn't allowed to get my diploma. Even though I had taken all my regents exams, the New York State regents exams, over the years, and I actually had qualified for a regents diploma, I had somehow passed five tests, algebra, science, English, social studies, and Spanish. Yes, I took Spanish all through high school, and finally, mostly understood it, although I still had a lot of trouble speaking it. I hadn't taken the SATs, though. And I had no guidance from any guidance counselor because their efforts, of course, went to the kids who showed up for their appointments. Not high. My mother and father both had to go in and talk with the deans, but I had missed too many days, so I had to go back for an extra six months and make up six credits, getting my diploma for real the following January. Brendan, who was in a similar situation, just dropped out. That January, I also had found a job at a brokerage company at the end of Wall Street where Dawn was working and where you could see, hear, and smell the endless construction of what would soon be the nearby South Street seaport. Nikki would soon join us there also. As for Janie's mode of employment, still drugs. The job with Dawn and Nikki was a repetitious mind-numbing, soul-crushing, back-office clerical job that paid a grand total of $83.79 a week. My life was at a standstill. All I did was go to work, hang out with Brendan, either at St. Peter's Park or 192 Schoolyard, and get high. And all I was drawing now were tattoos for people who would pay me 5 or $10 for one, depending on the size. Tattoos were still illegal in New York City, so everyone went to Big Joe's up in Mount Vernon to get theirs. Big Joe liked my work, and he actually sent word that I could come and get a free tattoo for Miss Flashwall. A pre-designed tattoo as opposed to an original design, but I could get it any time I wanted. So I went up there one Saturday with Nikki, with the idea of getting the Led Zeppelin IV Zopho symbols on my stomach. 
Nikki went first, and as she was getting a purple butterfly on her shoulder blade, she suddenly screeched in pain, which made me decide to forget it. And even though she went on with getting the butterfly, she screamed so much in between, I was like, later for this. And I never did get a tattoo. Still to this day. And every time Brendan and I would come home from yet another concert or a lazarium, I'd see those posters by Paul Davis for SVA on the train, and I would just cry and cry on the inside. The longing and the frustration was even worse than my misguided crush on Easy Eddie, who thankfully no longer was at 192 Schoolyard. After our little scene, he had gone Hollywood with the disco-loving Waterbury Park crowd whose idea of a good time was to go dancing at the Stereo Lounge in Westchester Square or Frankie and Johnny's in New Rochelle. Barf. Yeah, but my life was really no better. Brendan and I had been spending a lot of time with Billy Devlin and his girlfriend Renee, who had been my friend throughout the entire Easy Eddie scandal. We had hung out together a lot, but I never thought of her as a close friend, just the girlfriend of Brendan's friend, if you know what I mean. Renee liked taking pictures, and she carried a Canon camera with her everywhere. We had often all gone camping together, and she would take pictures of spiders in their webs, the insides of broken trees, and dead animals we found run over on the highway. And one day, in the midst of my easy Eddie mania, she took all those photographs to the School of Visual Arts. And she got in. When she told me, I told her my secret, that I had wanted to go there too, but had no idea how. And she told me that I had to try for it. I mean, just knowing that she was going there had changed her life. A month later, Renee took me aside again and told me she had broken up with Billy. She said she might have tried to stay with him, except he told her he had been punching holes in the condom so she would get pregnant and not go to School of Visual Arts. And the messed up thing was, she had gotten pregnant, but she didn't say a word, nothing, to anyone. She just went to the Eastern Women's Center by herself because nothing is going to stop me from being an artist, Shell. Nothing. The way her voice changed when she said Billy's name just froze me. It was a venom I chillingly recognized but had never heard before from someone who was not my mother. So... Like the hand that rose from the swamp at the beginning of every Saturday afternoon's Chiller Theater episode, that conversation sparked something in me that had been dormant for far too long. But that summer, my father had suddenly and unexpectedly lost his job when the construction company where he worked closed shop virtually overnight, and my family had to go on welfare. We would remain on it for the next two and a half years. And when I found out how much going to the School of Visual Arts, Visual Arts would cost, $75 a credit or $1,000 a semester, I panicked. My $83.79 a week didn't go far, even if I was still living at home. So I had to give up my dream. I did look up another two art schools I thought I could get into, Cooper Union, which was free, and FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, which was cheap. City colleges, which had been free for years, had started charging tuition a couple of years before, but, 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 they were still much cheaper than a thousand dollars a semester. I told Brendan of my new life plan on the way upstate camping, and he said, whatever you want to do, Shell, I can't stop you, can I? It sucked not to have support from my boyfriend, 
but it was worse not to have it for my family. When I told him I was going to quit my job to go to art school, my father said that no daughter of his was going to be a dirty bohemian. And I kind of expected he'd say that, since he hadn't wanted me to go to art and design either, but that had been six years ago, and what had happened since then? I ended up at Lehman, where I basically got beat up and took drugs, and I was almost 19 now. Things were going to be different. In September, Renee took me to Pearl Paint, which I remembered from my graffiti days as heaven on earth. But still, $25 or even 15 for a real artist portfolio was way over my budget, and I couldn't ask my parents for money. There wasn't any. And I couldn't ask any of my titis either. I mean, that would have shamed my parents, and I knew not to open that door. But by the beginning of the new year, I had put together what I thought were my best drawings, cartoons, tattoos, and fashion designs, and I applied to both Cooper Union and FIT for the fall 1980 term. Only both attempts were a disaster. I totally failed the test for Cooper Union. My literal little brain just could not grasp the concept of drawing an empty room among the other tasks, so I walked out halfway through, cursing them and myself. At FIT, I thought I had aced the interview, but when I brought my manila envelope out, the interviewer gave me such a condescending look that, had she done so in my neighborhood, she would have gotten the hell beaten out of her. And then she told me I would never be an artist, that my work wasn't up to their standards. But if I felt the need to continue my education, had I heard about the Catherine Gibbs School for Secretarial Training, I was crushed. When I told Brendan, he hugged me, said he was sorry, got us some mescaline, and took us for a wild weekend at Hunter Mountain with our new hangout couple. Now that Billy and Renee had broken up, we went places with Brendan's dealer, Petey, otherwise known as Rat, Basil, and his girlfriend. But when we got back, I decided I had to try just one more time. I finally did what I probably should have from the very beginning. Called the SVA admissions office and asked them what I had to do to go there. They were very patient and nice. They told me that since I had not taken the SATs, I would have to get into another college with an art program for a year, and then they would consider me as a transfer student. They recommended New York City Community College in Brooklyn, which had a two-year art program. Only their application deadline was very soon. Nevertheless, I was thrilled to have a second chance, and when I told my family, my father just said I was 19 and not a kid anymore and I had better shape up. So for one of the first times in my life, I actually, well, not my life, my teenagehood, I listened to him. I shaped up by staying home and drawing every night after work instead of hanging out. I applied to New York City Community College right under the wire for the fall semester and got in. And that September... I started a new routine of getting up at 7 each morning for the hour-and-a-half subway ride to Brooklyn, getting home 12 to 14 hours later. The teachers were very understanding when I told them of my dream and did everything they could to help me with my application to SVA and the interview, which they told me could happen the next February if I wanted. If I wanted? Finally, someone else saw what I thought I had and it gave me hope. But when I told Brendan, he asked if we were going to be like Billy and Renee. And I had to tell the truth. I didn't know. We went camping a lot more that fall, almost every weekend. And then one night, Rat Basil told me that 
Brendan had been trying to sabotage me the same way Billy had done with Renee, and that he had heard Billy tell Brendan, if you let her go to that school, you'll lose her. Rat felt like he had to tell me. He liked my drawings and thought it wasn't right for Brendan to do that, although he did say if it had been his girlfriend, he probably would have done the same. I don't think I'd ever met anyone with a more fitting nickname. And then I was late. I'm sure you know what for or can guess why. I thought about what it would be like to have an abortion. I'd have to go to the Eastern Women's Center by myself, just like Renee had. If I told my mother, she'd either throw me out of the house or start speeching back up again, and I couldn't take that. And I didn't want any of my girlfriends to know either. They all thought Brendan and I were perfect together, and they wouldn't have understood. And there are some things a girl just does not share with her father. I thought about what it would be like if I married Brendan, and I realized if I didn't go to hell for having an abortion, I would certainly be in hell on earth if we had gotten married. But before I could make any final decision, I woke up suddenly, in the middle of the night, with the worst cramps and bleeding I had ever had. I made my way to the bathroom where I stayed for most of the night and then back to bed, afraid if I fell asleep, I would die. The next morning, I skipped work and I went to Planned Parenthood. I wasn't pregnant. It was just a late, bad period, but they examined me to make sure. And after the exam, I asked them to put me on the pill, which I would stay on for very few breaks for the next 25 years. Thank God for Planned Parenthood. They saved my life. On New Year's Eve, I decided to break up with Brendan. I waited until after his 21st birthday had passed because I didn't want to ruin it, but I think he knew it was coming. Soon afterwards was my School of Visual Arts interview. At the interview, I ran into Pasha, a boy from New York City Community College who was in the same art program as I. We were school friends and I always thought he was kind of cute. Tasha was from Jackson Heights in Queens, had been born in Russia, and had come to the United States as a child. He was tall, though not as tall as Brendan, with sandy brown hair and olive skin from his Tartar Muslim father, and large, round blue eyes from his Ukrainian mother. He was smart, funny, plus he didn't just get high. He did stuff. He went to see old movies, roller skated, and played the guitar. In his sketchbook were intricate, multi-layered drawings that were part M.C. Escher, part Hieronymus Bosch. He went to see bands that weren't Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, or Black Sabbath. Plus, he hated Lazarium and loved Star Trek. He asked me that day if I still had a boyfriend, and when I said no, he cocked one eyebrow like Mr. Spock and said, Cool. Pasha and I would both be accepted to the School of Visual Arts, and he would become my next boyfriend, and we would stay together almost seven years. Later that spring, I was coming home early from Brooklyn when I heard a voice say, Shell? I turned and had to look twice to see it was Easy Eddie. I almost didn't recognize him. He had gained weight and didn't have the swagger, swagger I remembered and seemed subdued somehow. I asked him what he was doing and he said he was working for a bank and he hated it. He asked me what I was doing, and I said, well, I was in one art school and was going to transfer to another one in September. And he looked at me like he had never seen me before. 
without saying anything, which made me so uncomfortable. I said, uh, you know, this is my stuff. I got to go. See ya. And I took my portfolio and got off the train. I'd gotten off three stops early, and I knew that he knew it too. Sometimes, for some things, no matter how old or young you are, it is too late. That was Elton John's Someone Saved My Life Tonight playing underneath some of that last story. But now it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist Interview of the Week. So get ready, kids, because it's showtime and we're going to theater world. And this man is so fucking amazing. He's like the best teacher ever. Oh. He's a theater performer and producer and festival human. Please welcome to Fish Out of Agua, our first white person. Woo! <laughs> Peter Michael Marino. Wait, are people like clapping when they're listening to this right now? I don't know. They could be. I could add applause to this as a sound effect. No, let's keep it real. Oh, okay. We don't want to make right, them. All right, all yeah, right, yeah. yeah. I'm honored to be your first white. <laughs> How did you find me? There's you're, so few of us. You're these not days. my first gay, though. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> but you are the first, you're first white. white gay. Yeah, 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 That's yeah. That's But what I want to know, and what Fish Out of Agua listeners want to know, is what started you on this road to perdition? <laughs> <laughs> I know where the story starts in Queens. God, actually, it's funny. I was just thinking about this. Um, <laughs> the other day, a funny girl was on TV. And I remembered when I was in seventh grade, mm -hmm. or maybe eighth grade, mm -hmm. I had pneumonia. Ooh. Uh, I had viral pneumonia, which is kind of the better one. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, like, I don't want to know Meaning what, like I wasn't, it was weird. I don't know what it, it was. A weird well, you didn't pneumonia. die, so that's I good. didn't die. I guess I still have it. I always will have a, the opportunity to get pneumonia. Oh. But I have never gotten pneumonia or okay. bronchitis. Oh, and I'm not healthy, so it's crazy. Uh, but uh, uh, I was home alone, you know, like, just home. In like, Queens. In Qu no, this was in Long Island. <laughs> oh, yeah, I moved you guys to moved? Long Island. Okay, yeah, okay. I just moved to Long Island. Right, that Queens, gave me pneumonia. Queens East. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I went Island. through my parents, like, records, stacks of records. I used to listen to all my dad's, like, the Mills Brothers and, like, jazzy things and, like... Uh, Big band stuff, you know, I mm -hmm. like that. But I came across, they had a bunch of records that were of musicals. Mm. South Pacific, uh, Man of La Mancha, and uh, the one I was just talking about. Hair? Funny Girl. Funny Girl. Very typical for and a 70s childhood. Totally. Yeah. So I was like, what's this Funny Girl? And I played that record, and I was like, what? What is this? Someone's, like, singing about how they're feeling this is what is this you know it really just kind of like it was so weird like I had never seen a musical really is that Barbara Streisand also yeah like, oh, don't wow. tell me not to lend you know like what is this type of music and then I would read you know back in the day when we could read yeah like actual books small but yeah. like the record opened up and there was like the oh, plot oh yeah liner notes liner notes liner notes why the song was and what happened and I just became fascinated and then um, the, uh, the my public school was doing um, Oliver and of course, I didn't know what Oliver was, but I went to the library and got the record. I was like, this is like a story and they're singing about it. And then that's, and then the next year I was like auditioning for shows and then 
you know, whatever. The rest was history. The rest that I couldn't escape. Wow. See, it's funny because I could picture you dancing around your house to Jesus, Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> I was never really a fan of that one for some reason. I did. Too me, heavy. Me and my brother used it's to too do heavy. that. We used to, I, we used to play, play all the parts. I don't know. No. You know, when I was like growing up in Queens, I lived on 61st Street off of uh, Fresh Pond Road, Myrtle Avenue area. And like I did used to put on shows, but with absolutely no reference. Like I had never seen a show. So I don't know how I put on shows, but I would, like, stage Peter Pan in my basement every Christmas. I would, like, just a one-man show. Or I would bring my sister in, and she would kind of play, like, Wendy. But I played every other part. Um, I could picture that. And I remembered staging it, and uh, then I used to put on, like, dance shows. So we would, like, choreograph, like, an Osmond song or a Jackson 5 song. Oh, Jackson 5. And then I would go to the printer next door. I lived next door to a printer, and, you know, they would give me Oak Tag. I think that's what we called it yes. back then. And then I would they... make posters and put them all around the neighborhood, like, come see our show in the backyard. Oh, my God. That's like one of those movies with Judy Garland and what's his name? Mickey, Mickey Rooney. Rooney. I think I got it from the Little Rascals. Look them up, millennials. You know, I was a PIX guy, <laughs> yeah, which yeah, we yeah. all were back yeah, in Captain the day. Jack. We only had four channels. Exactly. PIX was the cool one, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they used to show Little Rascals, and yep. they were always putting on shows. Yeah, so I was like, they I could do that. I could do that. So I guess that's how I learned how to put on shows, which was was watching Little Rascals, and their shows are pretty weird. Yeah, and you can't even watch Little Rascals anymore. You have to like find it like on YouTube or Netflix or something. They're not allowed on broadcast TV anymore. I don't think uh, because they're racist. I guess. Not all of them. Not all of them, but I don't know. I, I don't know. There's reasons for everything. Yeah. That, 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 uh, that So uh, that's get. how I fucking wound up in, uh, can you curse? Yes, this is not FCC. That's how I wound up in, in the arts, I suppose. Yeah. That, that, what, what, what was the curse word in that sentence? Fucking. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did you go to a performing arts high school or college? No. I mean, I went to a state college. I went to a school in Buffalo because I wasn't really sure if, I want. To, I was really interested in design, uh, both graphic design and theater design. Oh, and cool. Buffalo had like a both like SUNY Buffalo. Yeah, uh, they had. They both. Had, they had a great program for 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 both graphic design, or just design, I guess it was called, uh, and theater. And then uh, I really got into like color theory. I really took a lot of color theory classes, uh, and I took some logo classes. And then I just took a crap ton of theater, like everything, like lighting design, set design, costume design, makeup design, everything. So how did you end up in Stomp? <laughs> That's a great question. Because you the, did that for like 10 years, right? I did that for five years, okay. five and a half okay. years. Uh, that was, uh, well, I played drums. I came home from, so I have a cousin who's a drummer who's three or four years older. And I came home from school one day when I was Four, because I went to school. I'm a Scorpio, so I went to school when I was four, not when I was five. Not college. Yeah. Uh, and I came home one day, and, I, and my father said, do you want to learn how to play drums? I said, yeah. And then we went right to the Mr. Gillespie, and I learned how to play drums. Oh. So I always played drums, but uh, I didn't like playing a drum set. It mm. was just too loud and too much focus on me. But I knew rhythm, and I knew how to read music. And, yeah, I w waited outside the West Beth, you know, what on Bank Street. What year was that? Oh my God! I don't know, eighteen hundred and twenty or something. I mean, it was a really long time ago. Like nineteen ninety. I want to say it was like oh maybe ninety five. Okay. Ninety three or ninety four. Okay. I waited outside with hundreds of people. Got down to you know just kept getting cut and cut and then I kept staying and stuff and then I didn't get in 
And then the next year they call me back, I didn't get in. Then six months later they call me back, I didn't get in. And then three months later they just offered me the job. So you know what that is? Persistence. Persistence. Yes. And still he persisted. Well, they didn't know what to do with me. They just didn't know what to do with me. I was just like a really just a different, weird, white guy. Uh, and that show is really a lot of clown work. Yes. Uh, which I have never studied. A lot of physical studied. comedy. It's physical comedy, yeah, yeah. But it's all about like taking in the audience without speaking a word. And the, the role that I got was the comic guy who, oh. you know, by the middle of the run of the show of five years, I was playing to like 3,000 seat theaters and having to like make 3,000 people laugh without saying a word. Wow. And you just kind of learn like how just your, your eyes yes. can do the yes. work and just your... Being comfortable on stage really is what it is, and, and connecting. And that show is still running today. So how did that segue you into? You've done the Edinburgh Fringe Festival like how many times? Well, this coming like August will be my fifth, but my fourth time per, uh, performing. My okay. first year I just directed. Oh, okay. And I left that festival going, I'm never coming back here. This place is crazy. And that was de- desperately seeking Susan. Uh, uh, the desperately seeking the exit. Desperately seeking so, the exit. No, no, the Sorry. first show I ever directed there was a cabaret show, oh, okay. and I, I left there going this okay. crazy. Okay. And then two years later, I went okay. back with desperately seeking okay. the exit. Then I went back the next year. Okay. Then I took the next year off. Then I brought Lance last year. Then I took last ah. year, and I brought Gary Busey's One Man Hamlet. Yes. I, so you you both produced and performed in Edinburgh Edinburgh shows. Correct. Over the past like a decade or so. Yes. Okay. Yes. But what I want people to hear about when we're speaking about like our thing is like, and nevertheless he persisted. Talk to us about Desperately Seeking the Exit. Well, that just was born out of a... I mean, I wrote a musical called Desperately Seeking Susan based on the movie, but I used all the music of Blondie, and it took two years to develop, and it was supposed to be a big hit, as everything is, and it turned out to be a really big flop. It was just everything went wrong, Uh, and then about a year after it closed, which was a a month after it opened, uh, I... Just wrote down the whole... I, I had kept a blog of the whole thing. and The one, debacle? One day I just looked at the blog and I was like, oh, this is like a good story. I was rem- I was far enough away from the experience that mm. I was able to view it objectively and not be like, I'm a loser. It was terrible. Right. I hate everybody. That's the, dis- the, that's the difference that distance makes. It doesn't become therapy. Sweet. You can look at it objectively. Yeah. And you can find the humor in the worst yeah. fucking situation. And oh, I think yeah. it kind of... I think in a weird way that show like kind of put me on the map because... You know, who doesn't want to see, like, a backstage gossipy story? Although it's not really. It's just facts. It's not gossip. Right. Uh, and I think because it was a solo show, it was sort of storytelling and some theatricality because I used music and stuff in it. Um, that I, I, yeah, I mean, it just kind of made me go, oh, I guess I like this. And, and you, it's the quintessential. You took a lemon and made, like, lemon mojitos yeah. out of it. Yeah. Seriously, yeah. that's great. I like how it, like, kind of inspired other people. Yeah. And that's kind of, like, I, I feel like from that show of realizing, like, how you can connect with strangers, mm-hmm. which is why I go to Edinburgh, because that's the only place right. that, I don't know, enough people of the audience is strangers. If you can connect with strangers and make them feel something uh you feel like you're doing more than like just jerking off and doing telling my shit i i it's now become like the most important thing to me is that i am affecting people as opposed to just doing it for me yeah no i totally get it i mean to me that's what makes you such a good teacher 
is that you you can t distill that experience that that you had and you can impart it in a way that's so non-judgmental and you have this like supernatural ability to know exactly what the person needs to fix the show like when you told me to do the bear and there goes the neighborhood from the bear's I point of view and moment. I just like turned fucking white as a shit <laughs> my hair went gray people and then it came back oh my god it was crazy so talk to us it's true and I'm still doing the show today there goes the neighborhood that's why I call it the bear show yeah the bear to show to me it's like the Teddy. bear is like what I it's such a good show. I will be bringing it back, but back to Fish Out of Agua. So um, tell us a bit about Solocom, why you started it, and, and, and who you're doing it with, and your plans for, for the future, and blah, I blah. just cooked up the idea and pitched it to the pit, you know, four years ago, because it just felt like there were lots of solo festivals, but none that were doing new work, and none that were doing comedy. Mm. So I just thought, well, New York needs a festival that is all new solo comedy work, and you know, it's kind of like, you know, from me working with you, like, I'll give you a deadline and I'll make you work towards a certain goal and stuff. Solocom, like, forces people yes. to, A, come up with an idea to the, to apply, and then, B, they have to get it done in 10 weeks. Yeah. No, I know. I, ha I got two shows out of that. Yeah. The Bear Show, they yeah. go to the neighborhood, just, and, and the... That's how it is, time. right? I mean, you know, like, you've got to, like, book the dates. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just going to keep developing. I'm doing air quotes because I'm forgetting I'm on radio. Air quotes, air yeah, quotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You forget, you know, you're just developing the show in your head. Right. But, like, once you book dates, then you're accountable. Like, you have to yeah. show up. It's like when I pitched this to Radio Free Brooklyn. I had no clue how to do a radio show. I'm recording this on the voice recorder on my Android phone. But, like, you know, you figure it out as it goes along. Yeah. Like, if it was good enough for the Ramones, it's good enough for me. Absolutely. You just, like, do it. Just freaking do it. So um, tell us about your, your latest show. Uh, well, show now, Up. Now I'm doing a show called Show Up, which, I, isn't that the best title? I can't believe no one else has used that title. I think it's just the best title it, it, ever. It, it was waiting for you. It was waiting for me. Yeah, so this show just came out of me knowing I had to do another show. <laughs> it's That's a weird artist thing, right? You yeah. just kind of know. It's like, yeah, it's it's like I guess the women else. like feel like they have to get pregnant. Well, I get pregnant with, with, with art stuff. Yeah, you're just birthing a new baby. Yeah. And it was time to birth a new baby, but I just wasn't in the mood to write or memorize a show. I just wasn't. So I was like, well, let me just show up at a theater and make a show happen. And I thought of all these different ways that could happen, which is already becoming artistic, because you're already thinking about the process. Right. And then it was, uh, very soon it was... Um, becoming like oh maybe I should make it a solo show based on the audience and then I was like oh well I'll just get suggestions from them about their real life experiences and then it became about oh maybe I can get them by telling them some of the things about myself as an example mm -hmm. you know uh, and then one day I remember texting my director McColby Alcasino and saying oh my god the show just took this really dark turn she goes great what is it and I said, I'm just going to out myself as someone with social anxiety and depression. And she was like, that sounds great. Because <laughs> she's Life evil theater. like me. And then that's kind of what it became. So the show is like half of it is tackles social anxiety and depression. And the other half tackles uh, sort of uh, embracing and spoofing the genre of solo shows. But the way that all happens is because the audience has to be so involved in the show that they cannot be socially anxious. Right. So the trick is for me to make them feel very comfortable, but also let them know they're a huge part of the show. 
And so far, after 11 performances or 12 performances now, no one has ever not come up on stage. Wow, so it's actually kind of meta, isn't it? Meta and good. It's totally meta. Just, you know what, if you're really fascinated by this, go to my brand new website. And what's it called? Showuptheshow.com. All right, so- I mean, did the gods smile when I was like, is this did. available? It's available. I'm smiling. So this has been Peter Michael <laughs> Marino and Fish Out of Agua. And we're back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua and another story that starts with a letter that was spoken but never written. From Chapter 32 of Fish Out of Agua. Uncle Junior. Dear Michelle, you didn't know him. He didn't want to know you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about anyone. If he did, he wouldn't have done what he did or been what he was. Don't play dumb. You know I'm talking about Uncle Junior. You think I'm dumb? You don't think I saw you talking to him at Grandma's funeral and afterwards at the house? Did you know that he took the marijuana the doctors gave her for her chemo? She wouldn't even smoke it because she was afraid to be high. Because she was afraid she'd end up like Junior. He's no good. Do you understand? Oh, you think he is misunderstood. You think he is an artist. Well, let me tell you. I saw you showing him your drawings when you were little. And if he put that idea in your head, that is just one more reason for me to tell you that he has brought nothing but shame and suffering to this family. Why do you think Grandpa had so many heart attacks? Why do you think Grandma had the diabetes for so long? I'll tell you why. Because the truth about their son made them both sick. So sick, they had no energy left for me, your Uncle Freddy, or Papa, or Frankie, or anyone else. You think because he lives in that apartment in the village and he draws pictures and writes things and plays music, he's an artist? Nah, he's a fake. Uncle Junior isn't an artist. He's on drugs. A doper. A junkie. Yeah, he takes heroin. And he has been doing that since he was a teenager. And I don't care what he says about being clean for the last ten years. And I don't care if he's a, oh, I'm a counselor helping other drug addicts now. Good for them. Because it don't change what he did to Grandma and Grandpa and all of us. Did you know that Uncle Junior also has a wife and two children back in Puerto Rico that he hasn't seen since you were a baby? No, of course you don't. And did you know that the woman that he's living with now isn't his wife? She's a junkie, just like him, and so was the son. That's not his. But of course, you don't know that either. Don't you understand? I don't care if they say they're clean now. You just see the apartment in the village, and the books, and the paintings, and the records, and you want to live there. Yeah, I heard him say that he would give you the lease to the apartment when they move. But I don't want you to live there. I don't want that life for you, Michelle. I love you, and I don't want you to be that way. I know I can't stop you from going to art school. You're of age now. But I ain't going to help you pay for it. I won't help, help you end up like him. Please don't be like him. Please don't be an artist. 
You're not. You're not an artist. I am your father, and I love you. Your father, as ever, Rudy. Chapter 33, Showtime. Uncle Junior did ask Cousin Isabel and me if we knew where Grandma Izzy's medical pot was, but we didn't know, and we didn't tell him that we'd been looking for it, too. My father and I didn't stay in Florida for very long this time, though. We just stayed long enough to see Grandma Izzy home from the hospital. I had to get back to New York. I was about to start my new school. I loved New York City Community College and soon found I was getting almost straight A's. My fellow students in the art program were really nice and I soon had a new group of friends. And most of the other students were really nice too. Well, almost all. One early December afternoon, I was in the cafeteria yelling at some boy who was trying to hit on me. He was ugly, but I was polite and used a time-honored, face-saving letdown, I'm sorry, I have a boyfriend, which was the truth. But he was either partially deaf or wholly delusional because he persisted, at one point grabbing at my arm, and this is when I stopped and yelled, I told you I had a fucking boyfriend, you fucking moron, now leave me the fuck alone before I break a chair over your fucking head, you fucking fuck. And that's when the teacher came up to me. I shut up right away. I was scared. I was scared that I was going to be in trouble and embarrassed because I realized I was a little too old to be in this kind of trouble. But instead of reprimanding or reporting me, the teacher just asked, Can you sing? Now, I didn't know what to say, so I said, um, uh, Yeah, kind of. Well, my name is Dr. Emily Weber, and I'm the chairman of TheaterWorks USA here at New York City Community College. We're casting for a spring show. It's Guys and Dolls. Have you heard of it? Can you come today at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for an audition? I, I was so happy I wasn't going to be in trouble. I, I said, yeah. And luckily for me, my last class that day was done by 3, so I went. And an hour after the audition... I was Miss Adelaide. I knew what Guys and Dolls was because I'd seen it on Channel 9's The Late Show and on Channel 7's The 4.30 Movie, but I had no idea what it was like to be in a play. I'd never been in one unless you counted being an angel once in Sunday school, and I didn't think so. When I told my family, strangely, my mother seemed the most excited. She said that she had seen both the movie and the Broadway show back when they had come out, and then she took me into her secret closet and brought out some of her outfits in the 1950s and said, Here, take these, in case you can use them. The perfectly preserved chiffon sundress, wool crepe sheath, and satin cocktail suit, of course, didn't fit me, as I was four inches taller and twenty pounds heavier than she had been at my age, but... After she zipped her clothes back into their protective plastic bag, she said, Well, maybe then I can show you what it was like back then. She went up in a closet and took out a photo album I hadn't seen before. In it were pictures of my mother and father when they were young. One was of my father with some other teenage boys on a street corner. 
Behind them was a fading poster advertising World War II war bonds. There was another one of him on a rooftop among rows of cages with pigeons. And there were pictures of my mother's, too. One standing on a stoop with her friend Daisy. Another posing in front of Cleopatra's Needle in Central Park. And another park photo. This one of my mother wearing red capri pants and a black and white Swiss dotted blouse tied at the midriff. And my mother and father were holding hands in front of Belvedere Castle. Your father and I used to go there a lot, she said. And she looked almost wistful. In the album were also other photos of family members as she quickly went through. On the last page was a picture of me holding Kevin. It looked like it was taken soon after he was born. She looked at it intently for a moment or two, then abruptly slammed the album shut, got up, and put it away. And then she, then she went back to her cooking without saying another word, leaving me to think. This was the first time I really saw, really understood that my parents had had a life before me. I thought about the picture of them in front of Belvedere Castle, and I remembered my mother saying that they had gone there a lot. But I wondered, what for? And then I thought about what Pasha and I did on the few and far between moments we could be alone together, and I shut my thoughts down entirely. Thankfully, that photo album did not reappear. My father's reaction to me being in the play? Are you going to come home even later? He didn't like it that I rode an hour and a half or more each way from our apartment to Brooklyn to go to school. Sometimes I didn't get home till nine o'clock at night. Now it would be even later. But I loved being in that play. Maybe I didn't know any real acting, acting technique or, have the, or had the real life experience of a 1930s hotbox girl to bring to it, but I knew what it was like to pretend to be someone you weren't and to want something you couldn't have. So in that sense, being Miss Adelaide came easily to me. We rehearsed until 10 or 11 o'clock at night after a full school day. Sometimes I got a ride from the stage manager who lived in Co-op City, but most nights I was on a number six train alone, past midnight. I used the rides to practice my lines and my singing. I figured if people saw me talking to myself, then they would think I was nuts and leave me alone. Art imitating life. I also practice at home. I bought the cast soundtrack and also Jesus Christ Superstar because I heard that was going to be the next production, and I recruited Kevin to help. We acted and sang out both plays in the entirety in our living room at least once a week. Kevin made me promise not to tell his friends, but I knew he was having almost as much fun as I was. As for my after-school life... I didn't have time to hang out at St. Peter's much anymore. Of course, I never set foot anywhere near 192 Schoolyard again. But on the couple of nights I did go down to the park, I found out that Dawn had a new 30-year-old boyfriend and didn't come around much anymore, and that Janie, whose nickname had always playfully been Janie to Waste, had really become one. Nikki told me Janie's parents were about to kick her out of the house for doing drugs and that sometimes she slept in the park. Nikki was still working at the job on Wall Street. They had promoted her to assist in something or other and she was thinking about marrying Tommy. It's one I got, Shell, she had said. I didn't know what to say about any of it. 
Since I had broken up with Brendan, my life had totally changed. I was back in school. I was in a play. Maybe now my life was going to be good. Things were looking up. So, as luck would have it, both Grandpa Ezekiel and Grandma Izzy died early that spring. As often happens, when a couple has been together for over 50 years, one goes and the other soon follows. Grandpa Ezekiel suffered a fifth heart attack, loading his car on the way to go Dorado fishing. Grandma Izzy had been fighting diabetes for more than 20 years, and now it turned into pancreatic cancer, which she had fought until Grandpa died, and she joined him a month later. They both would never know that I had made the School of Visual Arts. Out of all the brothers, my father seemed to grieve the most. He stayed by himself a lot at both funerals, and I heard him fighting with Uncle Junior more than once. Cousin Isabel was inconsolable, too. She had been very close to, she had been very close to Grandma Izzy. She, too, seemed different somehow. But she had just gotten married and had a baby, so I figured that was why. Of course, I was sad, too, but not, not like them. I would understand what it was like to lose a parent until much, much later, and besides, I had been a- around Grandpa, Eze- Grandpa Ezekiel and Grandma Izzy all that often, really, just for two or three weeks in the summer mostly, so I really wasn't aware of or knew the secret subtleties and conflicts in my father's family, as I did my mother's. If I close my eyes, though, I can still see Grandma Izzy in her backyard in Hollywood, surrounded by the cousins. She's eating a mango and laughing. The sun shines through her hair, and her ancient, her ancient toothless tuxedo cat Puchito dozes at her feet. And that's how I remember her, with the sun shining through her hair. When I got back to New York from the Florida funerals, I didn't have time to think about anything besides guys and dolls. I really liked the routine of school and rehearsal, and I loved the friends I had made with the cast. It was almost like a family, though not like any family I was used to. Here, everyone looked out for each other and took each other's back when someone forgot a cue or flubbed a line or missed an entrance. I asked the boy who played the gambler, Nathan Detroit, my boyfriend in the play, if it was always like this when you acted, and he said, no, sometimes it sucks, but this is a good play and a good cast. Welcome to the theater. At 21, he was the veteran, having been in the company since he was 19. So, I thought, this is what it was like to be an actor? It was like the graffiti days, except so much better. And this, again, was something I was good at, so everyone liked me. I wondered if I should give up trying to go to school of visual arts and be an actor instead. But I didn't know what I would have to do to do that. Well, maybe I could ask the director, Dr. Weber, who had treated me with patience and respect teaching me how to be a believable performer and how to sing with a vocal coach and how she never made me feel like an outsider even though they had all been working together for two years. Yes, life was perfect again until my little acting family fantasy bubble burst. It was three weeks before our opening night and I had neglected to put together my portfolio for the School of Visual Arts interview and I had missed a couple of rehearsals to do so. Dr. Weber had been furious. She told me my responsibility was to her production and anything else had to be secondary. But I said, I I have my School of Visual Arts interview coming up. And she said she didn't care. 
that she had found me and she could replace me. I was in shock. She had yelled at other kids during rehearsal, but never at me. And later during rehearsal, when we were rehearsing the hot box scene where the dolls sing, Take Back Your Mink, I kept forgetting the lines. And she yelled at me again and again. I don't remember exactly what she yelled, but it made me just break down and sing to her, Take back your mink, take back your play, and go find yourself another Adelaide. And then I ran from the stage and back into the dressing room. If the rest of the cast had been friendly before, they were overwhelmingly so now. They all came and stroked my back and my hair while I cried, telling me that she didn't mean it and everything would be all right, but I didn't understand. I didn't realize that this type of behind-the-scenes drama was a part of every production. I had been so starstruck that I was blinded to it. And then Dr. Weber came into the dressing room. She told me to get the hell back on stage like a professional and act, damn it. And I told her I quit. She looked at me calmly, and instead of yelling, she softly said, Oh, I'm so disappointed, Michelle. I really thought that you were tougher than this. You know, that was why I picked you that day in the cafeteria. But now, I can see I was wrong. But I understand. You can go. Oh, that Dr. Weber was smart like a fleet of foxes. She knew exactly what to say to me to get me out of feeling sorry of myself and, to th- and thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to show you. And I stood up and I said, oh no, 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 no. I, uh-uh, I changed my mind. You got to fire me to get me to leave. And I went back on stage and we resumed rehearsal. Somehow I made it to my SVA interview. I went there with my two new girlfriends from my art classes, Amy with two E's and Tanya with an H. Walking down 23rd Street, I wondered what SVA students looked like. And then I walked through the doors and saw that I didn't look the part at all. At all. Both boys and girls were wearing coats and jackets that looked like they came from the Salvation Army with tight, skinny, black jeans. And some of the girls wore really short skirts and lace-up boots with gum soles that I would later learn were called Dark Martins. Or flat white shoes that I would learn were called Capizios. And I looked down at my turquoise carpenter pants and pink thermal shirt and felt like a clown. But everyone I met and spoke to couldn't have been more welcoming. Two people asked me questions, went through my portfolio, and thanked me. And on my way out, I ran into another fellow New York City Community College student, the cute guy I had a crush on, well, kind of, named Pasha, and we talked. Oh my God, we talked, and I left SVA floating on cloud feet. And a month later, our dysfunctional little acting family made it to opening night. That night and that performance was amazing, perfect, all of it. And I remember looking at Dr. Weber at one point. She was sitting in the front row and she had the same look on her face that Diti Carmen had when she saw Jesus. And I understood why, because I had felt it too. And after everything that happened all year, it had been worth it. As we took our bows, I stood on stage for an extra second and let the applause wash over me. I felt like I had finally found the thing that I wanted to do with my life, a rush of energy and lightning that was almost like being high. In fact, I couldn't remember the last time I'd gotten stoned. I'd just been too busy. I quickly changed and ran back into the auditorium. My whole family was there. Why, my father, Kevin, Abuelita, Titi Dulce with Ray Ray and Evie and Titi Ophelia with Benny. Well, almost everyone. Titi Carmen would have come 
also, but she was in the hospital. I didn't know. So much had happened in the last few months, it was hard to keep track of it all. And my mother hadn't come either. She had said she was going to, but when I asked my father, he just said, She couldn't make it. We're here. He and Kevin hugged me and said they were proud. Benny, Ray Ray, and Evie kissed me, and Titi Dulce was right behind them. Abuelita hugged me and said, Your play was very good, very nice, even though I knew she probably had barely understood half of it. And Titi Ophelia looked at me with something approximating respect for the first time in my life. My new boyfriend, Pasha, was also there, with Tanya, Amy, and her boyfriend, Kevin. I invited my park girlfriends also, but only Crazy Marie came. Marie wasn't afraid of going to Brooklyn, and I introduced them all, but it didn't register with me, because under my natural high was a current of deep disappointment. I had wanted my mother to come. I remembered when she had told me a little about what it was like in New York in the 1940s and 50s when she was growing up. I had never talked with her like that before, and I didn't know why we hadn't again after that one day. I didn't understand that she had always been a bit agoraphobic, and that something in that photo album had been a trigger for her, and she just couldn't go. And I tried telling myself that, well, I'm 20 years old now, and I don't need her anymore. Only that thought made me want to run away, scream, and throw things. But, but I couldn't, because a man had come up to us. He congratulated me and said, excuse me, but I would like to speak with your father. And when my father came back, I asked him who that man was and what he had said. And my father said, well, he was an acting agent and he gave me a card. He wanted my permission to talk to me about you because he thought you were 17, which I thought was weird since this was a college show. Dad, what should I do? My disappointment of my mom evaporated because this was exactly what I had been thinking about for months, how to become an actor, and now that it was right here in front of me, I, I was afraid. And my father said, It's your choice, little girl. I'm not going to tell you what to do. He <laughs> won't listen anyway. <laughs> and he went to talk to Titi Dulce. I remember when I had gotten my acceptance letter to New York City Community College almost exactly a year before. My father told me that I would be the first one in the family to go to college, and whatever I did would now set an example for the younger kids. I looked at Kevin and my cousin Benny, who were in high school, and Ray Ray and Evie not far behind. I looked at my new boyfriend and friends and remembered all I had gone through that year to get into the School of Visual Arts, and I thought, well, I could always be an actor later, right? And I decided... I wanted to know what it was like to be an artist first. I wanted my brother and cousins and my family to see me do it. So I never talked to that man. I don't know what agency he was from. My father never even showed me the card. If you have ever worked on a play or in a film, you know the immediate closeness and connection that develops from working so intensely together. You also know that these friendships generally only last for the duration of the production. And I, along with Pasha, Tanya, and Amy, had gotten into the School of Visual Arts. Kevin would be going to the Parsons School of Design. And me? I wouldn't be joining Dr. Weber and her theater group for Jesus Christ Superstar that fall, so at the end of Guys and Dolls' three-week three run, I said goodbye to everyone at the end of the cast party, and that was it. And that was okay. I was going where I had dreamed of being good enough to be. I wouldn't last. 
at last be at the School of Visual Arts. And that's our show. This is a little clip from Michael Jackson's Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, one of my favorite songs running beneath this story. And we kind of let this show get a little bit away from us, so we're out of time. But this has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn, and we'll be back with more story and show next week. See you then, kids. <laughs>